Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. How can it be that suffering would be something in which anyone would exhibit joy? It certainly is contrary to all that we were told in our upbringing in terms of that which Americans are called to. Even in the church, there is this idea so many times that because you are a child of God, you deserve better treatment. And I would say, oh, contraire. Quite the opposite is what God displays in his perfect depiction of how he would have his glory displayed. How could it possibly be, think of it this way, that you somehow could display God's glory best if your life were given to you on a silver platter with no difficulty? That's kind of the issue this morning in a nutshell, that you and I have great privilege in suffering to exhibit joy that comes from the Lord because of who he is and what he has done and not because of anything else. Not because of something you've added to that or cultivated or added to some sort of deficiency in what he has offered and what he has accomplished, but the joy that you and I are to exhibit in the midst of suffering is the kind of joy that can come from him and from him alone. And friends, if you're thinking this is foreign to you, you're not alone. For every single person in this room and every single person in this planet, even as Brad alluded in his prayer, we are not born into a devotion to the Lord. The ultimate desire of man's heart in his natural born state is to produce his own joy by believing that he somehow can. He wants to honor himself. God, on the other hand, he wants his glory to be displayed. How, though, with such great and really inexplicable worldwide suffering on scales that you and I can't really even comprehend, is it possible for God to somehow experience glory, for him to be glorified in the midst of unconscionable 
things about which we won't even speak because they are so depraved and so expressive of wickedness and devilish thinking and satanic activity and all kinds of things. How is it possible that in a world of suffering, in addition to that, how is it possible in the midst of the private suffering that so many people go through that others may never know about? How is it that when we see things on the internet and on the news that uh, there are those who have been undergoing great suffering by being chained in someone's basement for upwards of a decade, in some cases four decades, that people are locked into slavery for a lifetime and never ever experience any degree of secular freedom that you and I experience and have since birth and may do so until the day of our death. How can God somehow receive glory? But maybe the more difficult question is, how can a person experience joy in the midst of that? I want to assure you that there is a solution to that dilemma, and it is but one place, and it is in the Scripture. And so with great personal joy for you as your brother in Christ, I come to you this morning with the message of the Word of God that I believe will alter your life. If you'll look at your own life through the grid of Scripture, rather than the other way around, if we will subject ourselves to what the Scripture says, the theology is in the grammar. If we will look at the reality of what Peter was saying, authorial intent, understanding and believing what he has said, the Lord will unite us. He will unite us based on what he has said in his word. Let's look at it together. We see this phrase, in this you greatly rejoice. What is this? It's verses 3 through 5. He's referring back to what he has just talked about. So he, he displays it, he, he lays it out, and he says, in it you greatly rejoice. This term here that is... Uh, and uh, is translated as rejoice. It means to exult. It means to be extremely joyful. It is to be excessively happy. It's not the term that is more frequently translated as joy, Cairo, uh, which is a lesser joy or a less full joy. Both are used in Matthew 5, verse 12, where the Lord himself says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So rejoice uh, with extreme joy and also experience regular joy. And in so doing, you will exhibit the same joy that was given to the prophets who were persecuted before you. You, in a sense, are linked together with those who have gone before you when you live in that joy, uh, the joy that the prophets experienced while they themselves were persecuted and even killed in many cases. This term, when used in the New Testament, always refers to things spiritual, not things of temporary existence. What are you counting on this morning? Do you, do you run to express your joy on Facebook when something temporal happens? Oh, you won't believe what happened. Life is wonderful now. And two days later... <laughs> You know, the message is more like, you know, I, I hate everybody and I want to die. <laughs> it's 
This is not the joy Peter is speaking of here. He's speaking of a permanent joy that through the waves and the ebb and the flow and the difficulties of temporary joy, this joy remains steadfast. And in this case in particular, it is a consistent, maintained joy as Peter uses the present tense. In Romans 5, we see a parallel to this. This probably has come to your mind, many of you. Romans 5, starting with verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. So there is an exultation, there is an exuberance, there is an exceeding indescribable joy. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We don't just pretend to be happy. We don't Robert Schulerize the situation. Oh, believe and it will be. That's a lie. We don't look at things and pretend they are something they are not. We don't try to usher fantasy in and dismiss reality. We look at reality. We call it what it is. We don't pretend things are not bad when they're bad. We say they are bad, and yet God is sovereign. And my joy does not come from the changing of these circumstances, but my joy comes from him. So again, we exult in our tribulations. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. You know what perseverance is. It's that willingness to keep on that proves itself in keeping on. You continue in the faith because you believe that you can. You have an internal compulsion to persevere. And so you do. And tribulation is in many cases the basis or the ground floor upon which that's worked out in you. You persevere because in tribulation you've been tested. You've been brought increasingly to the place where you almost give up. And yet you keep on because in those tribulations perseverance is increased. Verse 4 says, back to in Romans 5, and perseverance proven character. So you are being changed. You are becoming less like self and more like Christ in the tribulation, which results in further perseverance. Your character is being refined. And so then what happens? And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. It's real hope. It's not like we talked about last week. I hope it doesn't rain. You know, I hope I don't stub my toe today. It is certain hope. It is absolutely fixed, proven, positive tried and tested hope and proven character results in a willingness to lean on that hope but without tribulation there would be no increasing perseverance without that tribulation there would be no increasing perseverance that leads to refined character without tribulation leading to that refined character leading to that perseverance there would be no hope and whatever hope you have it would be disappointing because it would be temporary. But we exult then in tribulation. Not because we are happy that the tribulation is happening in and of itself. You don't break your arm and say, wow, this is great. God loves me. <laughs> you say, I've got a broken arm. I've got to get to the hospital. And it really hurts. 
Lord will use it if I will respond rightly. And this is what suffering provides. Provides the opportunity for you and me and for every believer to become, uh, to engage in an increasingly high view of God and an increasingly low view of self. This is why he starts with the reality that our having been chosen is a result of his mercy. The more you are willing to take credit for your own salvation and everything else thereafter, the more you prove a high view of self. The scripture brings us to a low view of self and a high view of God. Proven character resulting in hope, hope that does not disappoint. Paul goes on to say, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not die for the person who proves himself to be godly and therefore there's a match made in heaven. Christ died for the ungodly, the godless, the unrighteous, the depraved, the totally wicked and evil, the totally unable. He died for the ungodly. Now, this great joy that we have, what is it in? I told you earlier, it is in verses 3 through 5. And so, quick review of last week. Number one, a merciful regeneration. A merciful regeneration. Because of his mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's given us new life because of his mercy. We were dead, he caused us to be alive because he is merciful. That's from verse 3. Number two, in what is this joy that he's talking about here in verse 6? Number two, resurrection hope. We have the hope of the resurrection because he conquered death, being dead himself and being made alive. Now death is conquered. There is no sting. There is no victory in death. It's taken away. It's robbed of that ability and glory in and of itself. Jesus receives the glory. He now has conquered death. Our hope is in his resurrection. His resurrection makes certain the resurrection of those he has caused to be born again. So when Peter says here in verse 6, in this we greatly rejoice, he's talking about merciful regeneration and resurrection hope. Third, he's talking about an imperishable inheritance. An imperishable inheritance. Inheritance, one that cannot die, it cannot fade, it cannot be taken away. It is reserved for you in heaven. He is preparing a place for you, and that place in which uh, that, that place is the place in which your inheritance resides. It's given to you, it's yours, it can't be taken away. Four, we rejoice in eternal protection. He says this very specifically in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you have eternal protection. Your salvation can't be taken away and your joy can't be taken away because you can't be taken away. God has determined that you have eternal protection. So again, in this we rejoice. In what? Merciful regeneration, resurrection hope, imperishable inheritance, and eternal protection. 
And for these reasons, we can and will bless God. We said last week that we want to bless God, resting in his merciful gift of unfading eternal life, believing with hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's really the impetus in Peter's message for us last week. So, again, now moving forward from verse 6 on to what Peter has to say for us now through verse 9, verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, what we've just talked about, these four things in verses 3 through 5. In this you greatly rejoice, and I want you to write these three things down. If you're writing things down, write these three things down. In this you greatly rejoice, even though, so that, resulting in, having never, and resulting in. I'm going to give you those again if you didn't get them. I'll give them to you a couple more times. In this, what we've just talked about, you greatly rejoice even though so that resulting in having never and resulting in. So I'm going to give you these five things, but the point system is going to be a little bit awkward. I'm just warning you. Sometimes, like last week, the outline falls onto the paper like properly prepared chicken falls off the bone. A little different this time. It just requires a little more finesse and care as we go through the text. But I've tried hard to craft an outline that is faithful to what Peter is saying. And so it won't be too difficult, but I think you'll find it to be unusual in terms of how we usually give an outline. So again, in this you greatly rejoice, 1A. Okay, I'm going to give you 1A, B, and C. And then we're going to give you two A and B. So in this, you greatly rejoice, one A, even though you suffer briefly. Even though you suffer briefly. Further in verse 6, Peter says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, variegated Trials, various colored trials, trials of all forms and fashions and levels of difficulty. If what? If necessary. And you can rest assured it is necessary. Why? Because you are not yet refined as you will be. The process of sanctification is a lifelong process reality. No one experiences it in full in this lifetime. You will be complete in heaven. But the goal of Bible teaching, this is really the heart of my heart, the goal of Bible teaching is in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, right? Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present them complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And so it's a continuing process. And so if you're involved in a faithful Bible teaching church, and there are men who are teaching the congregation, the idea is that that teaching is leading to your sanctification. As John said in John 3.30, I must decrease, and he must increase. That's sanctification. It's an increasing personal holiness being conformed to the image 
of Jesus Christ. And there are a number of elements to this that bring this about. But the primary issue is the teaching of God's word. And sometimes it's abrasive. Many times it is. Many times it's insulting to the soul. It should scathe us. The word of God should bring us to the place where we recognize our not just inadequacies, but where we miss the mark in terms of reflecting the person of Jesus Christ. And so on the other side of that, there's great joy because we see God doing that work. We don't just walk around saying, oh, I'll never be conformed to the image of Christ. He's so great. I'll never get there. We say, Lord, thank you that you are doing that work in me and you're doing it around me and other believers. So thank you that you are proving yourself to be good by doing that work in us and you're doing it as necessary. As necessary. When the warts and wrinkles and and spiritual difficulties in our lives are exposed, what happens? Other believers who love us speak the truth in love to us and say, hey, I think you could use some refinement in that area. And the response ought to be, thank you. Tell me more. Thank you for loving me enough to help me be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ that I might further experience the depth of joy in him. That's the right response. In John 16, verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So these variegated trials, these various forms and colors, that's really what the word means. Uh, The different coloration of the trials that you experience in your life are not only used for, but intended for your refinement while it's necessary. And again, Peter points out that in this, in that God has chosen you, that he has caused you to be born again, you will experience these trials. You can rest in the joy given to you by him in his willingness to give you merciful regeneration, but know that trials are going to come so that you will increasingly look like you have been chosen. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul refers there to this trial, this uh, trial-filled life as being for a momentary light affliction. And you say, Paul doesn't know what I've been through. And and I say, you don't know what Paul went through, but you should, because 2 Corinthians 11 gives us a pretty amazing expression of it. We don't have time this morning, but take a moment and read through what Paul went through in the name of Christ. Much of the suffering you and I go through is self-inflicted. We deserve a lot worse than what we get. Paul, on the other hand, was faithfully serving Christ. The affliction he experienced was, in fact, persecution. Momentary light affliction is real, but it is momentary and it is light, not only in contrast to what Christ endured for us under the crushing hand of the Father, but it is certainly momentary and light in contrast to the eternal weight of glory. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4. It's momentary. You can endure. And it's light. It is certainly light in contrast to what many, many others go through. But this is no reason 
to dismiss the significance of your trial. That would be equally shameful to say that it's no big deal when it is a big deal. It's not what we're saying. It's not what Peter's saying. It's not what Paul's saying. Your tribulation, when real and difficult and painful and elongated, is all those things in great force, I'm sure. But the point there for Paul is that it is temporary and it does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. Point 1B. So in this, you rejoice. 1A, even though you suffer briefly. 1B, so that your faith is proved. So that your faith is proved. Do you have faith in Christ? Well, sure I do. Okay, hang on. Buckle in. Because what comes now is the testing of that faith. And it is promised you Yet on the other hand, in the health-wealth gospel, in the charismatic movement, it is all about having your best life now. Friends, your best life is not now if you are in Christ. Your best life is in heaven. Your worst life is now. It will be infinitely and immeasurably and eternally worse for those who experience the rightful, wrathful hand of God in eternal torment. So you are between those two realities right now. And if you have been mercifully granted regeneration, your faith will prove that you have been, in particular, in the midst of trial. That's what it's for. Verse 7, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Now let's stop there. Let's look at the metaphor. Peter gives us this for a reason. Some of you have gold jewelry. You have something that is of tremendous value to you that is made of gold. It is a precious metal. In many societies throughout history, gold has been the standard of the monetary system. So everyone would get this metaphor in one sense. It's the sought-after, it's the most sought-after metal. And because it is of such value, Peter uses it here to point out that your faith, in fact, the proof of your faith, that's really the issue, not your faith so much as the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, even though not gold, but your faith, the proof of your faith is tested by fire. Now, gold is tested by fire. Silver is tested by fire. Precious metals are tested by fire. They're not only tested by fire, they're purified by fire. So the dross is removed. So the illustration or the metaphor is helpful in that sense as well. But gold being purified to its most purified element is never as precious as the proving of your faith. And yet, because gold is precious to us, many times gold uh, symbolizes for us a a relationship with a a wonderful person in our history, maybe a, a parent or a grandmother or a spouse or a child. So in a sense, that gold is not only pure in and of itself, but it represents something that is of great importance to us. And so we hold dear devotion to that person by way of that precious 
metal. And yet Peter here says, the proving of your faith is far more precious. You get that? He's not just saying your faith. He's saying the proving of your faith. That's grammar. That's looking at what he actually said. The proving of your faith, which is what? It's tested by fire. I don't have to tell you this. Fire hurts. It's painful. It does have a refining element. The person who just runs from the fire and wants nothing to do with it is the person who will never be refined. My life is about making sure that everybody's comfortable, especially me. My father-in-law and my, both of my brothers-in-law are firemen. When people are running out of buildings that are on fire, they're running in. And that takes a person who knows how to deal with fire. They're trained. They're skilled. They know how to do that. They know how to save people's lives in the midst of what would otherwise result in the loss of life. Fire is dangerous. It's deadly. And ultimately, it, it brings about destruction. But the fire by which you and I are tested, the fire by which the proving of our faith is tested, is just exactly enough for your faith to be proven. It's not an ounce too much. It's not a drop more than you can bear. It is exactly what is necessary. Therefore, whatever circumstance, whatever fiery trial in which you find yourself, it is the exact best scenario for your life right now. Why? Because your faith is being proven through it. And we'll get to in our text in a moment why that is so important. In James 1, verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy. Now stop. Consider it all joy, complete joy, joy without restriction, joy without qualification, ultimate joy. <laughs> and then there's a surprise in the rest of the sentence. Consider what all joy, my brethren, when you encounter variegated, multicolored trials. Again, don't miss the point. He's not saying pretend that bad things are good. He's saying recognize that difficulty comes, and in the difficulty, you must, you should, you can, and ultimately, for those who have been caused to be born again, you will experience very colored trials and joy. The trials are brought about so that the joy would be made known. And in this, your faith is proven. James goes on to say in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Yes, it is true, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. That's the idea. God brings you to exactly what you can't take and stops just immediately prior to that. And it is God's doing. Further, verse 4 and let endurance have its perfect result, its perfecting result, its maturing result. You know, don't look at the testing of your faith as, you know, being unfair. Oh, I can't believe he said that about me. Oh, I can't believe the way that person looked at me. Oh, it's so unfair. I can't believe nobody's doing anything about it. 
Let endurance have its perfect result. You're experiencing tribulation. You have joy in the midst of tribulation. Your endurance is increasing. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See that? You're being increasingly conformed to the perfect and complete image of Christ, therefore lacking in nothing. 1C, resulting in. Now, let me explain uh, further about the grammar here. There is a uh, somewhat of a domino relationship between these points. Rejoice in, verses 3 through 5, okay? Rejoice in that great merciful regeneration you have experienced. It, it is an imperishable inheritance. It cannot be taken away. God has protected it and protected you. Even though you suffer briefly, you rejoice in that. You rejoice in God having mercifully regenerated you, even though you suffer briefly. So the suffering comes, you still have joy. You still rejoice in what God has done, even though you suffer briefly. That was 1A, 1B, so that your faith is proved. So as you rejoice, your faith is being proven. 1C, resulting in the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why you were created. Resulting in the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why you were created. And so, 7B, the remaining part of verse 7, that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That it would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you rejoice in this even though you suffer briefly, but while you suffer briefly, your faith is proved, and while your faith is being proved, that results in the glory of Jesus Christ. What else is going to result in the glory of Jesus Christ? Your life is pain-free, and everybody says, oh, what a wonderful Christian man. He just responds to a great life by being happy. No. 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 Christ's glory is manifest in you when you endure trial. And you do so with joy. And therefore, your life is a natural, by default, proclamation of his greatness. See that? See, I have joy, not, not because God's paving the way for me to get a raise and to have a better life in whatever sense. You know, everything's wonderful. But in the midst of immense and immeasurable and, in, and seemingly unfair difficulty, I can look and say, but I have joy. Because my joy is not dependent upon my circumstances. In fact, my joy is increased with the increase of the difficulty of the circumstances because I am being led to the place where I'm no longer being dependent on those circumstances for my joy when they're good, but I'm reminded that my joy does not come from them. It does not come from those circumstances. So...
that as this results in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is his second coming, in the meantime, that's happening on an increasing basis. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for his return. We say we are. We should think of that daily. We should be reminded that the return of Jesus Christ is the day of ultimate happiness and joy. We will go to be with him. But in the meantime, we have a daily opportunity to reflect his greatness by engaging in joy. Now be careful that you don't slip into an unrealistic disposition that says, I know my life is terrible, but I'm going to pretend it's great. That is not what we are saying. We are saying that your life is seemingly immeasurably difficult, and it is ultimately phenomenal. What do I focus on? Well, I focus on that which is ultimately phenomenal. But I don't pretend that which is ultimately difficult doesn't exist. I just stare it in the face and I say, you're not my happiness. You're not the source of my joy. Number 2A. And having never seen him, you love, trust, rejoice in, and glorify him. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So let's start with that first little phrase. And though you have not seen him, you love him. It's the greatest command in the Bible. It's the greatest command in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you seen him? Have you touched him? Have you heard him? There will be those who will say, yes, oh yes, I have. Really? Well, write the number 23 in the back of your Bible and write it down. You believe that God has spoken fully as he has said he has in his word and that to those who add to his word, the plagues in it will be added to them. And to him who takes away from his word, their name will be removed from the Lamb's book of life. This is the declaration at the very end of the Bible. I would caution you that if you think you've had some sort of experience with God, you have a very low view of the scripture. At the very least, at the very least, your view of scripture is on par with your experience. God spoke to me. God speaks to me. God wrote the Bible. He also gave me a word of knowledge. Which is it? Is the Bible that about which God has promised he will prove the person to be a liar who adds to it, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6? Or is it unfinished? And therefore, you need a little more. You need a little something. You need a little shot in the arm. You need another word of knowledge from the Lord. And what is the argument against that? It is always experience. It is always but you weren't there when God spoke to me. You weren't there when God gave me the song. You weren't there when I felt the brush of angel's wings or whatever. Amen. What does the Bible say about itself? This is why in our two-year cycle of discipleship with men, we start with, well, we start with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, so men understand what it means to be qualified to shepherd the flock. But then we immediately go into a bibliology. What the Bible says about the Bible. And again, I 
remind you of Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, where the writer explains to us there that he is a shield unto us, and the context is his word. And he who adds unto his word will be proven a liar eventually. Peter here says, you have not seen him. Now, this is coming from a man who has seen him. You haven't seen him, I have, Peter says. Fast forward with me for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And that's all he says. He doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't encourage the reader to look for an experience. He doesn't say, this was awesome, you need this as well. He stops right there quite abruptly and then immediately says in verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, a word of caution for the person who says, I got a word from the Lord. God spoke to me. He's saying that he has been moved by the Holy Spirit in the same way that prophets of old were moved. Oh, and by the way, the Bible's not finished. I've got to add some things to it. God wasn't quite done, and I am the messenger. You ever had somebody tell you that? Uh, God gave me a word for you. Really? Why didn't he give it to me? And by the way, he didn't. So Peter says here, though you have not seen him. Again, the argument is always, oh, yes, I have. What is your standard of truth? What is your standard of truth? Is it the inerrant, all-sufficient word of God, or is it your experience or someone else's? He says then, you love him. So you don't need that experience. Christ has not given you that experience. You don't have tactile involvement with him. But you do have all that is necessary in order to love him. Really, ultimately, what it comes down to, uh, in a basic sense, is an expression of his character and an expression of what he has done. The person and work of Jesus Christ is certainly exactly enough for you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See how that stands in great contrast to the person who comes to the worship service just wanting a feeling to come on them. You know, this, I just can't wait to feel the person of God this morning. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Peter goes on and says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Is he trustworthy? You've heard the antagonistic pseudo-atheist say something like, well, why should I believe in Jesus? He's not here. Jesus is not only a well-documented, historic person. He proved in his lifetime to be God in his lifetime on earth. 
John 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. See, your devotion to Jesus Christ cannot and must not be dependent upon some experience. Can't be. It has to be rooted in what we know to be true about him. I mean, think of it. Think of it for a minute. Did Peter's experience, his tactile involvement with the Lord result in, in and of itself, a greater faithfulness? No. Peter denied him three times. Peter's hope came in what Jesus did and what he said, not in the ability to hang on to some kind of emotional experience with him. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. See how that happens to result in the faith of others? Jesus Christ doing a work in Paul. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came to die for sinners. And I was the worst of sinners. I am the worst of sinners. This is how Paul truly felt about himself. And then in verse 17, he says, Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He doesn't say to the the king, the glory of heaven, whom, whom I had an experience with on the road to Damascus. He points out to the fact that he is the invisible God. He is the eternal, immortal God. And to him, glory and honor are deserved. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Many of you memorized this maybe many, many years ago. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Believe him. Trust in him because of who he is and what he has done. Your faith is in that which is not seen. So again, we're saying here that having never seen him, you love him and you trust him, but you also rejoice in him. Peter goes on in our verse here to say, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This word here, which is translated as inexpressible, means higher than speech. You can't get it out of your mouth because you can't grasp it in your mind the joy that you have is beyond comparison and it is something you cannot really describe so you try you speak truth from the scripture you tell people of the great joy that you have but what they're really watching is how you respond to difficulty that's what really sends the message where words don't work. A response to your life does. Many times, the person who is wise and restrains his lips is the person who exhibits the joy that can only come from the Lord. He restrains his lips because he's not willing to communicate the lack of joy in the moment because he knows ultimately that his joy remains steadfast if he will just return to right thinking about the Lord. You greatly rejoice Peter says, with joy inexpressible. You can't 
put it in a Microsoft Word document. You can't get it all down. You don't really know how to express it, but you know that it's real. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 to 18, I mentioned this earlier and I'm going to mention it again before we finish. Paul says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So all this results in God's glory. God's glory via the difficulties in our lives to which we respond by saying that this does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. And then 2B, resulting in the salvation of your soul. Now listen very carefully as we discuss this. Resulting in the salvation of your soul. Verse 9 says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What is the vehicle of salvation? It is faith. It is belief. It is the avenue by which God's sovereignty makes its way into eternity. Before you or I begin to start taking some credit for that, Paul tells us in Philippians 1.29 that we have been granted belief. So God not only gets the credit and the glory for saving us ultimately from the fiery trial, but for giving us the belief that is the vehicle by which it arrives. You know this from Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 for with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. A more literal translation of verse 10 would go like this. For with the heart, a person believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses unto salvation. He is confessing his salvation. He is confessing with his mouth, and he is believing in his heart. And so faith is the vehicle. So what is Peter calling us to here? He's calling us to the cultivation of our faith, not just believing for the sake of believing. You know, in the, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, the, the phrase was, hey, brother, keep the faith. And you still hear that today off and on. Uh, but songwriters and and movies were highlighting this idea of keeping the faith. Keeping the faith in what? It was a blind faith about just hanging in there, man. You can do it. I remember uh, the great theologian Lenny Kravitz saying, you know, just, um, uh, you know, stay, keep, keep the glory, you know. Just keep the glory. <laughs> what? Keep the glory? What does that even mean? That it was all about hanging in there. You know, you can do it. You can survive. Our faith is not in a decision we've made. It's not in something we've done. It's not even in our ability to believe that we somehow have mustered up ourselves. 
It is in an object. It's in an objective object. It's the person and the work of the Lord. And so we have joy. And our joy is actually, according to this text, rooted in the fact that he chose us with mercy. He granted us new life as a result of that mercy. It is true, though, that we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Interesting note here. Peter uses this word, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. If you go back to our text from last week, I'll read it to you and I'll stop when we get to the word obtain. Just make a couple notes about it. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Stop there. Did you know that the word obtain is not there in the Greek text? That's why it's in italics in most of your Bibles. Some would say, well, you have to obtain it. Well, it's, it's not there. But the reason English translators have chosen to put it in is because you do take possession of it. Again, his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. We have an inheritance because we've been chosen to have an inheritance, not because it was offered up to us and we reached out and grabbed it, but it was granted to us. The word is here, though, in our text this morning in verse 9, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith. What do you obtain? You obtain salvation. And it does not bypass the mind. It does not bypass belief. Belief is the proof of the salvation. Christian joy is the thread that runs through one's lifetime, beginning with election in eternity past and culminating in the fullness of salvation in eternity future. And the proof of one's salvation, the proof that one is of the elect and that salvation is that thread of joy that cannot be severed, frayed, weakened, or burned up no matter how painful, unfair, unbearable the fiery trial may be. Faith or belief is the working out or the wrestling with the doctrinal reality of God's choice of you while you suffer. The man who has not suffered has nothing to offer but thinks he knows it all and has everything to offer. He approaches the preaching and teaching of the word of God only to assess it and not to learn. You cannot approach the book of 1 Peter with that attitude and walk away with anything but frustration. I'm going to take you one time, one more time, back to 2 Corinthians 4. And read the whole chapter. And I think this will be extremely helpful because Paul exhibits the exact same theology here as Peter in our text. And Paul here is speaking of the willingness and ability to stay in there in the ministry. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore... 
Since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. At the end of 1 Peter, in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God. That's what 1 Peter is ultimately about. That's the primary theme of the book of 1 Peter. Really, grace coming through the vehicle of God's sovereignty in your suffering. Stand firm in it. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Others who are chosen according to God's sovereign decree, who are also experiencing suffering, send you greeting. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let me ask you, in your suffering, who is sovereign? Sometimes you and I launch ourselves into the idea that we are sovereign. You know, we think I can control this situation, and many times suffering brings us to the quick awareness that we are not sovereign. But unfortunately, there is the inclination many times to blame Satan. Oh, it's all Satan's fault. Well, Satan could be involved. Certainly, demonic entities could be involved. 
But you don't know that. You don't have any way of knowing that. What you can know is that you are not yet completely refined as gold. You can also know that God is sovereign. According to 1 Peter 4, verse 19, we suffer according to the will of God. It's God's will that we suffer. Proverbs 16, verse 9, man plans his way, but God directs his steps. You see, God really is sovereign, and this is a comforting and soothing reality, particularly in the midst of suffering, because we can know that he has designed the suffering to be exactly what's necessary for our refining, that we would display a proven faith, and his glory would be known. Faith is the studio where the artist's imagined masterpiece is transferred from his heart to the canvas of man's soul, resulting in the artist's renown. And it requires a lifetime of waiting with patience and pain. And what does the canvas do? It waits, blank and faceless, with no worth to speak of, eventually becoming transformed into the image of its master. Faith is the workshop where the carpenter hammers out the character of man and shapes the character of God into him. Without shape or form, the carpenter's project is cut, hammered, sawed, chiseled, sanded, and detailed into something useful as it displays the glory of its maker. So in your great joy, even though you experience great sadness, God's great glory is made known. Father, we again reach to you looking for an increasing understanding of how we might display your glory, resting in the joy that you have provided for us, even though we suffer for a little while. Lord, I can only imagine that There is a multitude, perhaps even a flood of suffering that has taken place throughout the week and maybe even months and years that in some some sense seems to have come to an apex this morning in the mind and heart of, of a number of people this morning. So Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to recall the reality that you have not called us to a life of luxury But you have called us, even as your son exhibited, to a life of faithfulness, that we would suffer, and then in the midst of that suffering, we would prove credible to deliver the message of joy, that we have certain inexpressible joy. We would hope to be proven in how we handle and respond to suffering, that ultimately your great glory for which you have created us to express would be made known far and wide. And Lord, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ.